and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. I am Randy. Before I get to my conversation with ESPN's Bonnie Ford, I want to quickly tell you about Precision Pro Golf rangefinders. Every golfer needs a rangefinder that they can trust to know the precise distance to their target, whether you're on the tee box or in the fairway. The No Laying Up team from Tron and Solly in the C-suite to myself and Neil, the Strat Boys, we carry Precision Pro Golf rangefinders. And right now, the NX7 Pro Slope is on sale for $219. And listeners can receive an extra $20 off by using promo code TRAPDRAW. That's promo code TRAPDRAW. By our math, that means you can add the award-winning slope rangefinder to your golf bag this summer for under $200. Plus, Precision Pro Golf is the only rangefinder that offers free battery replacement services, which saves golfers an additional $64 on average. So you're not only getting a rangefinder, you're signing up for a lifetime service. Based in Cincinnati, Ohio, which I love, Precision Pro Golf performs all of their quality control tests at Avon Fields Golf Course, which of course is the home of my uh, best round of golf ever. So if that isn't good enough, Juju, I don't know what it is. Go to precisionprogolf.com, use coupon code TRAPDRAW at checkout for $20 off our favorite rangefinder. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Thank them so much for sponsoring this episode, and now on to my conversation. My guest today is Bonnie Ford. She is a senior writer with ESPN. She joined ESPN in 2007. Uh, having previously worked at the Chicago Tribune, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Detroit News, and the Ann Arbor News, among other things. Uh, She has written extensively about doping in sports, specifically covering the Lance Armstrong case, and provided analysis and commentary on issues related to athletes and performance-enhancing drugs. In addition to that, she has covered a wide range of international events, including the Tour de France, men's and women's soccer World Cups, men's and women's tennis majors, uh, world marathon majors, and a bunch of other sporting events. Bonnie, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Phil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was, um, I, I'm really glad we could uh, get together and have this conversation. I uh, candidly, you know, I've, I've certainly read your work throughout the years, have really enjoyed it, um, and just recently enjoyed the, the Lance Armstrong documentary, which you were a part of, and it put put you on my radar as somebody like, oh man, you know what? I would I would really like to talk to her about, you know, her career and the business and, and some of your experiences. So um, yeah, again, thank you. Thank you for joining. Uh, my first question for you is, if you could talk about how you got into sports journalism, why sports journalism? Um, did you always know you wanted to be a journalist and then how did how did you end up in sports as opposed to you know some other area of journalism so it was a really unconventional path uh i decided about halfway through college that i was well suited to be a journalist i wrote quickly for one thing and absorbed information and sort of was able to distill things in a way that made me feel as if i could 
succeed in, in that field. And journalism was a very hot um, profession at that point. It was not too far removed from Watergate. And I looked at it as a, a real calling. Now, <laughs> I found myself at a liberal arts school that did not have a journalism department. So I kind of had to um, build up from scratch. I worked at the college radio station uh, in sports specifically, and then went on to a radio job in Ann Arbor. From there, that turned into a freelancing job uh, at the Ann Arbor News. And ultimately, they liked what I did, but they didn't have a slot in sports and decided that uh, they would offer me a job in quote-unquote regular news. And I covered city council and um, cops and courts and all of the sort of conventional stuff you do at a small town paper education as well. But my heart um, was always kind of halfway back there and, and thinking about, gee, what, where would my career have gone if I had stayed in sports? I could see that at that point, more and more women were uh, entering the field. And so I, um, after a period of time at the Detroit News, mostly covering criminal justice, I went on loan to USA Today in their sports department and got myself some clips and got a job in Cleveland and the rest is history. So that was 25 years ago. Long answer to your question, but really what, what I want to emphasize and what I tell journalism students as well is that while it's all fine and good to want to be a sports journalist, it is really, really helpful to have background in other news, other fields. I mean, knowing my way around uh, public records, knowing my way around a courthouse, having, you know, interviewed elected officials and business executives was really helpful uh, in, in understanding some of the more complex stories that I've had to report in sports. So it's a very checkered path, but it's, <laughs> it was a good way for me to come up. I have no regrets. Yeah. Um, no, it's interesting. Just, uh, and was that Oberlin College? Is that, is that where you did your yes. undergrad? Okay. Yes, indeed. Uh, I got a bachelor's degree in political science. Okay. Are you from Ohio or did you grow up in Michigan? Are, are you from the, the Midwest area? No, that's another interesting sort of, one of the reasons I wound up in international sports to begin with is that I spent all of my high school years in Paris, France. Um, my dad was working there for IBM, and so our entire family was there um, throughout my high school years. And I went to an international school and um, did most of my schoolwork in French and speak the language and absorbed a lot of the sports that my friends followed, such as uh, Tour de France, such as um, soccer, and which was growing in the United States then, but not anything near uh, what it is now. And so I love to travel and, and, you know, had that, if you want to call it multicultural orientation from the beginning. And that's what drew me to Olympic sport and international sport. Uh, I like the idea of looking at sport through the lens of culture. I like the idea of traveling. And at the time, there weren't a whole lot of mainstream journalists covering some of those sports. So um, it was a good choice. It was a good choice for me. I've, I've covered my share of mainstream sports other than golf. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, 
again, no regrets. I've just absolutely loved it. And as you reeled off there in my intro, I've had the opportunity to cover just about every major international sporting event that anyone's ever heard of. And it's been a privilege. I, I had no idea that that you grew up um, overseas. That that kind of makes a lot of sense now, um, you know, with, with what you've done professionally. I, I'm curious when you were kind of getting your your start and and early on in in the business. Do you remember a piece of advice or you know words of wisdom that you received that that really sticks out even after all these years? The most. Uh, the closest thing I have to a mantra in journalism, and it's not original, I'm sure many young journalists have been given this advice by crusty old editors, but it was show me, don't tell me. I think, you know, when you, uh, whether it's in a news story or a feature story or analysis, the more that you can use detail and scene and um, illustrate your point rather than Dating it um, is really, really important. I mean, there's a place for both, obviously. And in opinion writing, you're supposed to say your your views. But I think a lot of young writers tend to depend more on, you know, kind of how they're processing something instead of describing what's in front of them. And uh, I wasn't any different. And I think I'm much better at that now, but I still have to remind myself sometimes in the course of writing a long form story. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, that declarative sentence is all fine and good, but you need something to back it up. And so that's what I carry with me, that, that bit of advice. Now, I don't remember <laughs> the first person who laid that on me, but uh, I'm sure it was probably, probably advice I got more than once. Yeah. Well, and when I was reading, um, Doing, doing my prep to, to speak to you, I read, and I think it was in, in an answer that you gave in an interview, uh, you mentioned that you do three different types of writing, essentially. You, you do analysis, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, but, but I believe it's you, you do analysis, you do feature writing, and you also do investigative reporting. For a layperson like me or, or for folks that don't quite know the intricate differences between those styles of writing what what's the difference i guess and you know what do you have to flex different muscles uh i, I imagine you do uh while while doing those different styles absolutely you do and i came up very old school where you keep yourself out of the story and it wasn't until quite late in my career after i came to espn that i was encouraged to do more analytical writing and even opinion it's still not something I do often because even though it is, I would say, a much greater chunk of journalism is devoted to analysis and opinion now than used to be, you don't, if you're covering a beat or you're covering a, a sector of sport and you need to talk to a variety of different people all the time to do good reporting, then you can't afford to alienate them um, or you, you just, you have to be very fair. If you're going to write opinions, um, you, you need to make sure that you are backing what you say again. Um, you know, I, I never wanted to be a pure columnist. It didn't appeal to me. I, I was always more interested in, in the interviewing side of things. 
that's where I feel that's what I enjoy the most. That's what's the most rewarding is building trust uh, with a source, especially if that person has been through something traumatic or uh, has been reluctant to speak in the past. Um, being able to build confidence with someone and have them understand that maybe, you know, you may not be presenting things in a way that they'll love every word, but they know that you're going to be fair. So the question you asked about the difference in styles, this is one of my stock, you know, sort of stump speeches I give to journalism students. And that is that there, there shouldn't be as much of a fence between those styles as we would like to think. In other words, a feature story, which you would think of as a profile or a, a trend story or, uh, you know, a scene story. You, you parachute someplace after something has happened and you write about it. Yes, that's a feature story, but every good feature story has investigative components. You know, there are things, if you have time, which you don't always, that you want to research about the person that you're writing about that might involve public record searches. Um, you know, you, you, I learned the hard way coming up that you, you don't want to be surprised. You don't want to write, um, you know, spend a, a month or two weeks or a week on a feature and then find out that there was this big chunk of this person's life that you didn't know about because you didn't do some background checking. So my favorite kinds of stories have been that kind of story that come that where you use both of those tools. And um, I guess the best example of that is a piece that I did back in 2013, where I researched swim death, uh, swim fatalities in triathlon in the United States. And that piece started with a database that I compiled myself, and then reached out to a lot of families who had lost people and then featured some of those families. So it was really an investigative piece written in a feature style with the data set to kind of thread throughout. And my next question, I, I you obviously do a ton of interviewing, um, both, you know, as background for your writing, but also, um, which I want to ask you about in, in a bit, uh, you know, as, as podcasts and, and whatnot, as myself, as somebody who now finds I, I have the privilege to interview folks such as yourself and, and others, um, but I never would have dreamed to be able to do that. I'm trying to get better. I'm always trying to be a better interviewer. And so I, my question is, uh, you know, are, are there tips or tricks uh, to, to the art of interviewing? And how do you think your interviewing techniques and methods have evolved uh, through your years of uh, reporting and writing? The biggest mistake that we all make, and I still make it because sometimes you're just not having as sharp a day as you'd like, is to get out of your own way and keep your questions lean and simple and open so that they can't be answered by a yes or no. That's a, the quickest way to have, you know, a buzzkill in the middle of an interview is <laughs> yeah. you can you know, take a big, long inhale and ask this great question. And the person says, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, um, it's all about prep. I mean, it's fine to sort of put your questions in order. And maybe they're a paragraph long when you start writing them out, but they need to be um, 
as concise as possible and lead to that kind of descriptive answer. So instead of asking, you know, are you uncomfortable in this and such situation? You would ask, what, what makes you uncomfortable about this and such a situation? The how, the why. I mean, it all sounds like really simple stuff, but most of the time, if we're doing an important interview, we're human, you get nervous. You know, you maybe have a very limited time. Uh, I'm about to face that kind of situation coming up with a, a very big name athlete. Uh, you have X minutes. And you got to get through this much material. And I can hear myself. One of the absolute least favorite things I do is to transcribe my own interviews and listen sometimes to my own voice, you know, taking too long or beating around the bush or just not asking a question in a way that would position me to get the best answer. So it's a, it's a process and it, you're not going to be perfect all the time, but I think Again, it's also about the rapport that you establish. And sometimes an imperfect question can still lead to a good answer if you and the, and the subject are already in the middle of a good conversation. So keeping your own anxiety level down is very important and keeping those questions lean and open. Perfect. I love that answer. Uh, and I'm going to be very self-conscious the rest of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Please, no, no, no. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll try not to ask you any of those uh, bad yes-no questions. Uh, well, I want to kind of transition into some of the areas where you've, you've spent a lot of time. And I think I associate a lot of your work with doping, right? You do a lot of reporting around anti-doping in sport. How did you get into this world of, you know, reporting on doping, anti-doping, uh, did, did cycling lead you there or was, was there a kind of a different path into the, into that? That's a very fair question, Phil. And cause it doesn't seem like the most appealing area, but it was a direct line for me from my work and my years covering criminal justice. And I was always really, really interested in seeing how the law unfolds in criminal courtrooms what, you know, how good lawyers structure arguments, what a jury takes into consideration after all said and done. I, I just loved covering court, even though some of the content was pretty depressing. So in the mid-90s, when I came into sports writing full-time, anti-doping was the Wild West. There was very haphazard testing. There had been a couple big scandals, but there were no uniform regulations between sports or between countries. That's ultimately why the World Anti-Doping Agency was, was founded. And so a couple of cases came up in the Olympic realm where I just didn't understand, you know, what legal principles were being applied and, and why and what rights athletes had and how they would make an argument to try to overturn, you know, a bust. And in the course of that, I started conversations and source relationships, some of the persist to this day, with lawyers and people in the anti-doping field and athletes. And that, you know, so my sports journalism career kind of evolved along with what is now a massive industry of anti-doping bureaucracy and testing, and one which has been revealed to be extremely flawed in many ways. Um, 
but which is still better than nothing. Um, and, you know, along the way, I've, I've met some really, really dedicated people. And I've also met uh, some people who I think um, in the in international sports governance who simply view anti-doping as a theater or some, you know, sort of a way to convince the public that what they're seeing is always legit, which it's not. Um, but I, I've always found it fascinating. It kind of covers the waterfront. You have issues of legal ethics. You have issues of morality. You have issues of, you know, what is fair competition? And um, and then you have science, um, which was not my major and which I've had to learn a lot about. I kind of joke sometimes that I should have honorary degrees in um, hematology and cardiology and a bunch of other stuff I've had to <laughs> cram on to learn about these issues enough to be able to translate them to the general public. So it's been a really interesting path and I don't regret it at all. Um, I keep saying that I don't regret it, but it's true. I've learned a ton and I have not been in that world really for the last couple of years. I've kind of gone off and done some other things, but I keep an eye on it and it's never boring. Put it that way. Yeah, certainly, yeah, certainly never boring. I and I, I, I'm curious to hear if you think this is fair, a, a fair perception or not. Sometimes I think of doping in sports. Um, so I imagine like a big iceberg, right? And what we see above the water is kind of the anti-doping, and some people getting caught. And then I imagine, you know, underneath the water out of sight is this massive amount of, of doping, uh, really, you know, if I'm being really cynical, probably across most sports, is that, am I being too cynical? What do you think of, of that statement? I'm going to start with sort of a bigger picture thought. And that is that anyone who goes into sports journalism thinking that sports is simple is going to find out really quickly that it's not. And in that way, sports is the same as any other field that you would go into to cover. There is cheating in every field of human endeavor. There's cheating in academia, there's cheating in business, there's cheating in politics, there's cheating in anywhere two or more humans are gathered. And you know, I wish we had access to statistics that would tell us if more athletes cheat than, you know, people in other fields. I don't think that's possible. But there have been studies, um, anonymous studies, asking athletes that, hey, if you could take this pill and it would guarantee you a life goal in your sport and you knew you wouldn't get caught, would you take it? And there's some overwhelming preponderance of athletes that said yes. Well, put you and me in that situation, Phil, if, if somebody told me, okay, you can take a pill and you will win a Pulitzer and nobody will ever be the wiser, uh, would you do it? Okay. I mean, I'd like to think I would do the right thing, but I have always viewed sports as just another way to, another prism to look at the human condition through. And Yes, there's cheating. There's also this massive gray area, which has become more and more apparent as the anti-doping science and industry has evolved. And that is the use of therapeutic drugs 
whether it's an asthma inhaler or insulin or any number of drugs that the general public has absolute right to use, but which are deemed by the anti-doping establishment to be performance enhancing in certain amounts. Or if you don't have asthma and you're using an asthma inhaler, is that performance enhancing? That stuff is really, really thorny to sort out. Um, I think that testing has had some impact, um, some in, in more sports, uh, more in some sports than others, I should say. But there's never, ever, ever going to be a point in time where testing or even, you know, police action and investigation are going to completely stop doping. It's not possible. And one of my colleagues who I've done a lot of this kind of reporting with, TJ Quinn, uh, has said something many times that, that I wholeheartedly agree with, and that is that you still have to try. If there's not a concerted anti-doping effort at the top of sport, then you're making doping the price of doing business in each level below that, whether it's college, high school, or even youth sports. And so in a way, you know, you can look at it and say, ah, they're doomed. They'll never catch up with everybody. There's always going to be designer drugs that are ahead of the curve, but it's an effort worth making and, and worth doing the right way. And, and, I could go on and on about how anti-doping needs to be reformed and detached, much more detached from international sport, but that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> well, maybe we can do that one down the road. I, I am curious because you use the example of a Pulitzer, and of course there's monetary uh, benefits to, to winning a, a, a prize such as that. While you were talking about the, that, though, the thought that was in my mind was, I wonder if the people who decide to dope and, and really cheat in, in any walk of life, because as, as and I agree with you, as you said, you know, uh, sports isn't that much different than, than any other uh, pursuit. But I wonder if people are more driven at the end of the day by accomplishment or by money. Um, and, and that's where it brings me back to sports. You know, the amount of money that have come into professional sports, uh, whether whether that is a bigger motivator uh, for cheating than, you know, just high performance and, and accomplishment. There's so many factors that go into it. There's, of course, there's achievement of a goal, and that goal oftentimes does bring monetary rewards. There's also a, a sense of either what peer pressure or, hey, the guy next to me is doing this, and... So I'm going to do it too. Um, and then there's, I don't want to be over dramatic, but there's survival. You know, we know that athletes in many, many sports take drugs chiefly for recovery purposes and recovery, you know, is, can be categorized as, as performance enhancing for obvious reasons, but they, you know, in, in their minds, the equation is, this is what I have to do to keep my job. That happens a lot. And it, I'm not making an excuse for it or defending it, but it is a reality, whether it's in the NFL or cycling or, you know, name many, many other sports. This is, you know, I want my career to be longer and more profitable. I want to, you know, support my family. I want to hang in there and I've had many injuries and this is what I need to do. 
all of those rationales come into play. It is not just a simple light bulb going on overnight in somebody's hotel room of, oh, I'm going to do this now. I think folks, some folks wrestle with it more than others, but I don't think it's ever a simple decision. Oh, and the other factor, which I left out of the list, is, is what advice you're getting. You know, if you have a mentor or a coach who means a lot to you, who's saying, you, just, you know, try this, maybe it'll help. Or I know it worked for so-and-so. That also can be powerful. Now, the World Anti-Doping Code is increasingly focused on the athlete's um, enablers, on their entourage, because particularly when you're talking about very young athletes, it's not a good dynamic. And those folks should be held accountable when they're responsible for introducing an athlete to drugs, to performance enhancement drugs. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's just, it's a complicated issue. It is not, I know we all would like to look at it as white hats and black hats right. or good guys and bad guys, but I've known plenty of, you know, really decent people who for one reason or another made that decision. Um, many of them are remorseful about it. Some of them aren't. And then I'm sure there's also been some jerks that haven't doped. So I, I just, in, it's not a fun subject to, to think about and delve into. It's not a fun subject to, to dwell on when you're just looking for a little escapism on a Saturday afternoon, but it's, <laughs> it's there. And those of us who cover it and, and want to be honest with ourselves, you just have to live with the tension that sometimes you don't know everything. You don't see the bottom of that iceberg, as you put it. Um, you're just not able to see it when it's happening, and you only find out about it sometimes many years later. Well, that's a good um, – it's it's a bit of a crass segue, but I, I, I want to ask you about cycling. And obviously the, the, the sport of cycling, international cycling, has – you know, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people, that's one of the first things they associate with it is is doping and, and the scandals that have arisen from that. Um, but first, I, wa I want to ask you what it's like, if you could describe, it seems like a huge circus. Uh, what is it like covering the Tour de France? I, I imagine it's a complete log logistical nightmare. It can be. Uh, it's also fun. And part of this comes out of my background growing up in France and speaking the language and really loving the country. And at its purest, you're driving around, you're in a car many, many hours, but you're, you're driving through six or seven distinct regions of France. You're seeing beautiful, out of the way, gorgeous landscapes that are not oftentimes tourist destinations. And I kind of, I did most of my tours alone in the car. I really kind of liked the contemplative time and looking around me and um, playing music in my car and checking in on the race updates. Not everybody does that. A lot of people think I'm crazy. They, they want a navigator or GPS certainly made things easier. And that came along. Uh, but yeah, that there are days like that. And there's other days where you, get stuck in horrible traffic and or your clutch starts giving out on a mountainside or you get lost despite your best intentions and you, you 
or you get delayed and you miss something. I mean, or your hotel room gets sold out from underuse. All of those things can happen too. But I always kind of enjoyed putting together my battle plan for each night and where I was going to stay and what would give me the best chance of um, doing my interviews at the start and getting to the finish in a timely manner. And when all said and done, um, at night you finish your work and you're in France and you hopefully have a nice meal and a glass of wine and go to bed and do it all over again the next day. So of all the events that I've covered, it's the one definitely dearest and nearest to my heart. I've done 14 of them. Um, most of them start to finish. Uh, this year, I don't think that's in the cards for many, many reasons, but the virus being primary among them, the, the Tour de France is scheduled to happen. I, I'm still not convinced that it's actually going to go when they say it's going to go. But I hope if it does, that um, it doesn't result in, um, you know, unhealthy consequences. Yeah. I, I'm curious, those updates you get in the car, would that be over a radio? Is there like an official, is it a broadcast or are, what, what are those updates like? Because as you're describing it, I think one of the challenges of covering golf, I, and I think there are, maybe some similarities to cycling is because the playing field is so spread out and you have a lot of individuals, it, it, it's hard if you're in person sometimes to like track the action or, or the, you know, the, the, the leading action. And, and so it's, it's weirdly, it can be easier to follow a golf tournament uh, watching on TV, you know, certainly from like a press center, uh, just watching on TV rather than trying to be out in person and covering it. So it's really interesting to hear me say, you know, you're you're in a car, you're doing interviews at the start of the day, and and of course at the end of the day. But all that time in between, are, are those updates coming through a broadcast, or do you have like spotters that are communicating with you? How, how do you get a sense for what is happening? Mostly for me, it was simply listening to commercial radio, or every once in a while, if I had decent cell service or Wi-Fi, which is not always the case, you can plug your phone in and, and kind of listen that way. There's a hierarchy of media vehicles in the Tour de France and the organizations that send lots of people and have professional drivers um, and have different access to the course than I do. Those folks have actual race radio. Uh, I've never had that. So you're exactly right that there's a, a parallel with golf that the world feeds does not catch everything. And a lot of times there's developments in a race that you have to piece together afterwards through multiple interviews because there is no footage of it, even if you're in the press room. So my the basic structure of a day like that, especially if it's an important stage that you think is gonna make a difference in the race, is that you may or may not do interviews at the start, you hightail it to the finish, get yourself in front of the, the feed in the press room and, and watch it and listen and then run out and do interviews at the finish. And if something has gone on, like, for example, um, crosswinds on the course can often alter the dynamic of a race in seconds. You know, there's a split in the peloton and some guys who are contenders don't make the front group. And, and in order to reconstruct that, you really have to talk to people. Um, and so it, it's a bit, uh, 
it's Rashomon like, you know, it's, you, you, you're going to probably get, if you talk to six people, you'll get six, six different perspectives. Um, but it's the only way to piece it together. And again, I, I find that challenging that not everything is laid out in front of you all the time. In fact, quite the opposite. And it took me years to really understand tactics in cycling and all the different things that can be going on simultaneously in the race. And that was fun too, in the process of mastering that. Well, can I ask you about uh, Lance Armstrong? Um, and, and specifically, I, I know you said you've covered 14 tours. I, I didn't know if that's maybe consecutively, so going back to around 2005, 2006, or did you cover some before that time period? Um, but the reason for my asking is, uh, what were your, f- the whole Lance Armstrong story, right? You, you've obviously done a ton of reporting uh, on him in, you know, the, the 15 years um, or so since he last won uh, a Tour de France. I, I guess what, what were your perceptions of him going into your first tour? Uh, and, and what was that experience like when, when you first got to know him? So I covered, I was not at his first tour win in 99, but I was at all of the others from 2000 through 2005. I covered, covered a couple more tours, then he came back. I was there in uh, 2009 and 10. And then I took a break and then went back to the sport um, or back to the tour a few years ago. Okay. So it's been broken up. Um, When I went to my first tour in 2000, uh, I had paid attention to the Tour de France as a kid in France. But, and of course, when Greg LeMond won his tours, that was such a dramatic story. Uh, That definitely made it across the Atlantic and, um, you know, I was familiar with that history, but I was a total neophyte in terms of cycling tactics, as I said, and um, and the whole ethos of the sport. I learned from the ground up, thanks to some really, really generous folks in the Tour de France press room um, who were only too happy to help this ignorant American <laughs> figure things out. So one of the things I was exposed to very early on in the press room was questions about doping. The sport had been through a huge scandal in 1998 uh, around organized doping, the Festina scandal. And so there were natural doubts that attached themselves to Lance and to also to other top contenders. But I didn't understand enough about the sport at that point, and many people didn't, to just look at someone and say, based on how they rode up a mountain, um, compared to other people, to point the finger and say that person's doping. I mean, you can't do that. Um, if you're a responsible journalist, you have to have something to back up what you say. Um, even if you interview other experts that have that opinion, it was a difficult story to handle because there was no proof. There was no positive test. There was there were suspicions. And there was a lot of back channel talk. So I would say that I always call my experience of covering Lance Armstrong an education. It was a great education in how something that seems so unlikely, you know, that this huge lie could live and succeed in plain sight. And I, I, it was humbling. 
Um, I just tried to listen and learn and, and find my own path through it and be as fair as I could. But that story was a story that was not going to come out until there was a critical mass of his former teammates who actually gave their own testimony about it, which is what happened in 2012. And when did I you... think that, that, and I'm sorry for running over you. Um, no, no, no. Sorry. If there was a, a, a turning point in my thinking, which is a lot, what a lot of people ask, like, well, when did you really think? You that, know, that's exactly what here? I was going to ask. Yeah. It was, it became a numbers game. I think for me, when so many other top, riders had been busted, either tested positive or some kind of law enforcement investigation had turned something up. And all these guys that he had beaten who were doing performance enhancing drugs, it became more and more unlikely that a clean rider could beat all these dirty riders. And that, you know, evidence, so to speak, was something that I, I just couldn't reconcile. And still, you know, it seemed like he had so much at stake. That was, that was another mistake is an old adage of journalism, never assume. Here he is, he's this global figure. He's, uh, you know, admired by many. He's a symbol of hope and inspiration. He has this foundation. Um, I mean, there were occasions where I asked him point blank, and I'm not patting myself on the back because it's just a logical question to ask. It's like, you know, do your, the people who admire you have anything to worry about uh, with you? And he would look me right in the eye and say, no, they don't have anything to worry about. So sometimes as a journalist, all you can do is ask the question, get it on the record, and put it in a story. Um, and that's what I did. Um, but it was, in the end, you know, it was too big of, a lie and too big of a secret. Too many people knew uh, for him to uh, not get caught, ultimately, which he did. Uh, there are a million. I, th I think that could be another podcast too. You know, maybe we, maybe we make our series. I could ask you so many questions uh, about Lance, but um, in the interest of time, I want to switch gears and uh, no pun intended there. Uh, and, and I want to ask you about the Olympics. And my first question, uh, knowing and, and hearing you talk about, you know, how interested you are in, in the legality of, of things and, and the criminality of, of certain things uh, having to do with sport. Uh, the Olympics are another area that, you know, are kind of fraught with just the whole model of, you know, the bribery scandals and, you know, the IOC rewarding the Olympics to, to certain cities. What, what do you make of the Olympics as they are today? Uh, do, do you think, and, and I guess my, my specific question would be, do, do you think they get more right? Do you think they do more good uh, than they are, let's say, like a, just broken and, and too commercialized? I'm going to give you another yin-yang answer, uh, okay. and that answer is I've covered eight Olympics. Um, I've seen some extraordinary things happen in front of me competitively, just moments that you cannot forget. I have done feature work on Olympic athletes that I'm really proud of and that was fun and rewarding and, and I hope meaningful in, in some ways. However, you're right. I mean, there 
if there's one wish I could have for how the Olympics emerges from this time where we are in history, both with a global pandemic and with, um, you know, Black Lives Matter movement and increased awareness of, um, you know, equality in, in opportunity and trying to understand our own innate biases. All that to say, I would love to see a reboot, a complete reboot. I know that's probably unrealistic, but the Olympics, the, the rivers of money um, that flow sometimes very much in the wrong direction, the lack of athlete input and say so in their working conditions, and the effects that this massive event has on many host cities, which you know, are not good in the long run. All of that needs to be torn down and built back up again from the ground up. I don't have enough lifetime left to do that <laughs> myself, even if I could wave a magic wand. It's a massive task. Um, but I do have some hope. I feel as if people are seeing, and you hear more and more talk about having a more pragmatic Olympics, having an Olympics that's maybe spread out um, among several different places so that it's not having... It's not like a meteorite hitting your city. Um, I think athletes, and again, especially in the context of the last few weeks, I mean, the, the idea that the IOC would come out, whatever it was, a week or two ago and say, no one is to take a knee at next year's Tokyo Olympics, if they even happen. It just infuriates me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for, for this organization, which has been so tone deaf, and so dictatorial about how athletes are treated to, to limit uh, or quash free expression by athletes of any kind. I'm not just talking about Black Lives Matter, but is really, um, it, 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 it's out of line. And it's been out of line for a long time. And as many, many athletes have told me, it's very hard for active athletes to also be activists. You know, they've got so much at stake. They do have short careers. They have sponsors that they don't want to alienate. I mean, there's a million reasons and they, they don't have time. You know, they're, they're training hours and hours a day and, and maybe they have family and so forth. But I think that with um, a few really key leaders in, in different Olympic sports among the athletes that you will see change. Um, that's my hope anyway. I'm always an optimist about that. And uh, I wrote a long story a couple of years ago about the, the Olympics in Rio and how the population there was promised that there would be great improvements in their infrastructure, including um, the way water and sewage is treated there. None of it came true. You know, I mean, how many times do we have to relearn this lesson? that the Olympics does not transform a place. It just doesn't. It transforms a place for three weeks and everybody puts their party hats on and then they take them off and it's in the circus leaves town. So I would love to see, um, I would love to see a more humane Olympics in, in a lot of ways. And we'll see what comes out of this. Again, I, everything is so uncertain right now almost every major international sport has put everything on hold and 
uh, we sure have some time to think about it now. That's I, it's so well said, and I, I agree with uh, everything you just said. Um, somewhat recently, late last year, 2019, um, published a story on a biathlete back in the 80s, uh, a woman named Carrie Swenson. And I know from talking to you, it's one of the most impactful and rewarding stories you've worked on. I was wondering if you could just share with listeners, um, you know, maybe give a, a quick summary and, and also, um, you know, let them know where they can read and, and listen to that. I, it, it's a 30 for 30 podcast, which I really enjoyed. Um, but if there's anywhere else uh, you, you would direct people um, to learn more about her story. Well, thank you, Phil. That, that story does mean a lot to me and all credit to Carrie. Uh, Carrie was one of the first stars of women's biathlon when that sport began to emerge in the early 80s. Uh, she was part of a world championship bronze medal team in 1984. And that summer she was, running, uh, doing a training run near Big Sky, Montana. She was kidnapped um, and shot during a rescue attempt uh, by a father and son duo who lived in the mountains there, and she survived. She came back to compete, um, but she had has lived with the after effects of that incident for 35 years. A friend of hers was killed during that rescue attempt, and so that added another layer of, of trauma uh, onto her experience. And I like to say sometimes that I, uh, the stories that I'm really drawn to are about strong women in complicated situations. Not that I haven't written about men, too, but I have uh, had the honor and privilege of having survivors of many kinds of trauma tell me their stories, whether it's physical abuse or sexual abuse or other kinds of trauma. And there's a big national conversation uh, that got going around the Larry Nasser case um, three or four years ago. And it struck me that we do, as, as a, a culture and, and especially a media culture, we tell these folks stories and then we move on. And, and we don't check in with them five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years later and say, hey, so how has your life been altered by this? And, and what things have you struggled with that maybe weren't apparent at first? And Carrie came to mind and um, we met and I told her what I had in mind and how I thought her story could touch a lot of people. And much to my real pleasure, she agreed and so that is the story that we tell in Out of the Woods, um, not only the incident and how she came back from it physically, but the psychological effects that she's had to deal with since. And it got a, just a great response. I think it proves the point that even when an athlete competes in a sport that for most people is quite obscure, that if they have a compelling story to tell, people will listen, people will read that story. So it also fits into kind of a larger category of stories that I've been very passionate about for the last decade, and that's athlete mental health. And um, I've written a, a few stories that delve into that, both how athletes 
overcame or dealt with or managed mental health issues and also the lack of resources that they have in their workplace, so to speak. A lot of sports are just not equipped, um, whether deliberately or ignorantly, to help athletes through what is honestly a, a far more stressful profession than than many of us have, where you have you work for a lifetime and you have one moment, you know, to make that pay off. Nobody is forcing them to do it. I understand that. And it's a privileged lifestyle, but it also brings with it, you know, a lot of burdens. And sometimes we're happy to ride these athletes' glory and, and great moments. And then we don't understand um, some of some of the issues that these otherwise extremely strong people can be contending with behind the scenes. Yeah. And I would, I would encourage listeners. Um, I, that was something I was going to mention too. You're reporting on Olympians uh, who have suffered from depression. Uh, you're reporting there. That's on ESPN.com as well. And is, is a really powerful story and, and one I would encourage everybody to check out as well. Um, I have two more questions for you, if that's okay, and then uh, and then um, I, I'll, I'll get you out of here. My, my absolutely okay. No, I'm enjoying it, Phil. Oh, good, good. no good. problem at all. <laughs> good. Um, my my first question is: Is there one story uh, across any sport that, if you had unlimited resources and access, that you would like to pursue that you think uh, hasn't been told or reported on? Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh boy. People have touched certain aspects of this, but uh, sports and climate change, mm. I think that's been put a bit on the back burner. Again, we, we uh, you know, the coronavirus has taken center stage um, for the world, not just for the United States. And um, I think the effect, there, there's two. Uh, sides to it, two facets. One is the impact that sports have on the environment, and the other is the rapidly changing environment for many sports. Um, we were just talking about the Olympics, and in Tokyo, start times for a number of events had to be, and even venues had to be moved because of the extreme heat in Tokyo at that time of year, which shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody, by the way. Um, <laughs> There, the winter sports um, are going to see massive changes in you know, where they're able to hold events and win. Uh, and then I look at my beloved Tour de France. Here it is, a, you know, a bicycle race, and a bicycle is a very environmentally friendly device, which I have loved and enjoyed myself, not climbing mountains, but running errands. And yet the Tour de France itself is a caravan of 4,000 people with, you know, enormous vehicles and um, the impact on, on, you know, emissions and it, it, it's staggering. Um, does it have to be that way? That, you know, in fairness to a sport that I've really loved and enjoyed, that needs to be looked at. Um, there's, there's, and it's just the biggest bike race. There's, there's lots and lots of other bike races that proportionately uh, have, you know, that a, a very large carbon footprint. 
um, not to mention all the flying that goes into international sports. So I'm a, look, I'm a sports consumer. I'm um, a sports fan as well as a sports writer. And um, I'm not suggesting that we, that we suppress all sport to save the environment. But I, I do think that sports needs to be a better global citizen in terms of its impact on the environment and some really good um, deep reporting on that would be a public service. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know you don't do a lot in golf, but you know, golf is right there in terms of the impact a changing environment will have on the sport. I mean, so many of the best and most famous golf courses in the world are right along coastlines and you know, they're, they've already had had issues both uh, here in the U.S., uh, in Scotland, the British Isles, just with, uh, you know, flooding and, and rising water levels and, and all of that. So, um, yeah, that's that's something that unfortunately I think is going to hit home in the golf world uh, going forward as well. The last question, and it's one I like to ask as many guests as possible, Um I'm just curious what, what you've been reading. Has there been a book or, or a couple books? Um, I, I won't ask you your favorite books. I always find that that's an impossible question. But maybe more recently, in the last few months, have, have there been any good books you've read that, that you would uh, share with listeners? I'm a huge fan of Colin McCann, the Irish writer who wrote um, – and you can ask me my favorite book. It's probably my favorite book of the last 10 years. It's oh, okay. As Let the Great World Spin. Uh, he's written several novels. Uh, I just picked up a short story book of his called 13 Ways of Looking. And I'll be honest, Phil, I, like many people uh, I'm hearing from, I, I've had some trouble concentrating over the last three months. You, you would think that quarantine and lockdown and everything would have been great for reading, but and I've heard this from a lot of people. It's, I think we all have this certain level of stress that is interfering with our ability to focus. And I kind of feel like I, I do my work and then I just want to do something mindless. Yeah. Um, so that's my excuse. I haven't been reading a ton. I read the New Yorker magazine every week, um, cover to cover. But I did pick up that uh, short story book. Um, I also... I'm a big history buff, and in early May, it was the 50th anniversary of the Kent State and Jackson State shootings on campus, and I picked up a few books about that, which turned out to be interesting choices given the events of the last few weeks. Yeah. So I'm wrapping up a big project now, and I'm hoping that um, maybe August will be a better reading month for me. (laughs) I've got a stack of books seriously on on my coffee table just teasing me and um whatever the new reality is of this summer i'm I'm hoping that i can get to them and and be a little bit more dedicated to my reading uh well fantastic and i hope i i i I wish the same for for you and i i can commiserate with your feeling of hearing you say that you haven't been able to concentrate as much during uh quarantine and lockdown it makes me feel better for for experiencing some of those same things so it's it's nice to find a little community there um yeah well we're all dealing with just unprecedented stress even when you have like the least stressful day of the last month is more stressful probably than most days 
of your life because of all the choices that we're making. So um, be kind to yourself, Phil, seriously. Like, you know, um, not all of us are going out and baking sourdough bread every day and (laughs) learning how to play cribbage or whatever people are doing. Like I'm, I'm jealous of these people who seem to be acquiring all these new skills. I'm just lucky if I get up, you know, get myself fed, get a little exercise, get my work done, talk to a couple of friends. And then it seems like the day evaporates. I've found some very basic cooking skills, which I'm, I'm proud of. I've been doing more cooking for myself than I ever have. And, uh, Certainly having the chance to, to talk to you and, and, and do these interviews has been a bright spot as well. So Bonnie Ford, thank you so much for, for the time uh, and all the wisdom and insight. Uh, I would encourage folks can find you at ESPN.com. Uh, you're on Twitter at, let's see, at Bonnie underscore D underscore Ford, I believe. And um, that's right. Is, is there anywhere else you would you would tell people to head? No, that's that's my front-facing social media. I'm not the most active tweeter in the world, but I am on there. I, I did take a long break. Um, took a six-month break at one point. I highly recommend it. It was good for my brain, but then I couldn't resist. I had to get back. <laughs> well, perfect. Um, thank you again, and, and have a wonderful rest of uh, your day, and, and best of luck working on and wrapping up your project. Thank you, Phil. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who 